Just the one Bible reading this morning from John chapter 6. We've been working our way through John. We're up to John chapter 6. Um, I'll give you a bit of a background. So uh, there are two episodes, two important things that happen in John chapter 6. First of all, there's the feeding of the 5,000, which um, I'm sure most of you would know about. So that's 5,000 men uh, altogether. There were probably about 10,000 people that Jesus fed with the loaves and the fishes that he was given by the little boy. The second event is um, Jesus was walking across the water to his disciples who were on a boat out in the middle of um, the, the ocean. And he walked out to them on the water and uh, took them safely to the other side of the Jordan River. Essentially, that's the first 24 verses for you. So we're going to pick it up at verse 25. So if you'd like to join me from reading John chapter 6, verse 25. The people have started to wonder where Jesus is and they, went, they go looking for him and once again they're starting to follow him. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, You were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, You have seen me, and you still do not believe. All those who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, 
and I will raise them up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give to the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds me feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Thank you, Vanessa. For those who are visiting us, maybe here for the first time, my name is Tim. It's great to see you. And we are working our way through the Gospel of John. And the way we're doing it this time is we're doing the series Jesus Brings. So whatever chapter we look at, we look at what Jesus brings to us from that chapter. So as you can see with that graphic up there, there's a line and we fill it in. Today, as we look at John chapter 6, we see that Jesus brings us absolute assurance that if we believe in him, that is, trust in him, direct ourselves towards him, then we are saved. We will have eternal life and even though we physically die, we'll be raised up on the last day. So Jesus brings us absolute assurance. Now, we saw some passages, um, we heard Jesus sort of say this over and over again. I've got some passages on the screen. So if you could put that up, please, Marnie. So as we read that passage, as Vanessa read it, you would have heard Jesus at pains to express to his audience and to us that you can have absolute assurance if you come to me. Here's some of them, verse 40 and verse 47. There was heaps more. The entire book of John, the Gospel of John, has this message to give us absolute assurance. At the end of John, let me read that out for you. John actually says, this is the reason why I wrote this book about Jesus. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John has captured what Jesus is on about. He wants to leave us with absolute assurance that if we face him, 
we will have eternal life. We'll be saved, we'll be raised on the last day. Now, for a lot of Christians, and this is, this is not just for Christians, this is an invitation for anyone to come and have this assurance. But even as Christians, we often find that we kind of lack the, the assurance. I don't know if you've ever, maybe you're going through it now or you've had times in your life where you've started to wonder, but am I really saved? Like, how do I know? And that can introduce a lot of angst and turmoil into our lives. You might, you might say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe this stuff. But you've got these doubts or massive questions that hang over you. And when that bubbles up, you start to feel, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, what, what does that mean for my Christianity and my salvation? Sometimes it's, it's more potent when you actually look at sin in your life and you might have ongoing sin and you've, you've been pressing hard against it, you've tried to knock it on the head, but it just keeps rearing itself. And that can introduce into you angst about, well, 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 you know, what's going on for me? Aren't Christians meant to be better than this? And where am I at with my salvation? Or you might wonder, do I need to confess more? Are they, do I need to spend more time sort of going back through things to make sure I've confessed them? Or I read about the fruits of the Spirit and I... I want more patience, I try to be more loving, I try to be generous, all those things, but I don't kind of feel it at the same time. I almost mechanically do it, I don't feel it. What's that really mean for me and my salvation? When those questions come up, if that's happened for you, I'm sure you've found it a bit of a torturous existence. It can bring a lot of anxiety to you. I think this is, I tried to think of a, I guess, a diagram that would conceptualise a bit of what goes on for us. And so I've got this one here. I reckon quite often uh, when, when we lack assurance about our salvation, we know that there's this Christian ideal in the centre. And each one of those dots is a person who calls themselves a Christian, but in reality is at varying distances from the ideal. And we know that. But then we construct almost like a boundary line to try and measure as to whether we are a Christian or not. So we put up this boundary, this boundary and we're looking for a number of characteristics that manifest in our lives. And if we can see those things, when we see those characteristics manifest, we go, aha, we are inside the boundary line. We are part of the category of Christian. And we might do this rather, you know, arbitrarily, but that seems to be what's going on when you, you go, well, if I've got faith but I've got doubts, how much doubt versus faith, you know, what's the determining factor as to that's going to give me assurance that I am in and not out? Likewise with ongoing sin, um, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, how much do I need to manifest to be assured that I am in and not out. And when we do that, um, it, my mic off. it gets doubly torturous because we kind of don't really know where the boundary is. So if you click through a few more times, Marnie, and one more, you know, like, you know, where, where's the boundary? Are the people that are closer in 
by this set of characteristics that get determined. Are they actually Christian, but maybe if you're further out? And, and so personally, inside ourselves, we can be making the boundary up all over the place and not really know where the line is. And we can do that to one another. We can kind of judge people out there and say, well, if I'm seeing this, it means that. If I'm seeing this, then clearly they're characteristics that mean I'm in. And even worse, sometimes churches and denominations can put up this boundary line and get very articulate as to what you need to display in order to be sure that you are a Christian. Sadly, one of the places that often occurs is at the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you've ever been part of a church where they really implore you to not come and participate in the Lord's Supper if you have ongoing sin in your life. Maybe you've been part of a church like that or you've heard of it. Um, And it's horrible. It's a torturous existence. Basically, we are living, well, how do I know? How do I really know? How do you really know and get your assurance? So today, as we look at John 6, we're going to see that if this is going on in our heads, um, it's all wrong. And of course, we're going to be unsure. Assurance comes from believing in Jesus. We'll look at more at what that means because as Jesus repeats that assurance through this passage, we see that he, he teaches us about it by using the powerful metaphor of bread is survival food. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into that. You can go to the blank screen, thanks. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and now help us to be bolstered again in assurance that we who have you at the centre of our lives will be saved, have eternal life, and will be raised on the last day. Amen. So come with me to John chapter 6. As we go into it, just two quick sort of caveats. Um, when you, as we, we sort of said at the start, when you read John's gospel, there's tons of stuff in it. There's like dimensions all over the place. And it really is constructed, the way John's written it, as a book that you're meant to read, read again, read it again, and read it again. And every time you get to the end and you come back to the beginning and you hit things, you get all these aha moments that take place. So often when you're reading it, you sometimes have to sort of sit there going, well, there's a lot of questions and a lot of things I don't know. That's just the way it is with this particular book. So... Read it and reread it and read it, reread it. But we won't be able to do that today. So that's the first sort of caveat. The second thing is, we're, we're actually going to finish with the Lord's Supper today. Now, um, it's worth pointing out that Jesus' talk here is actually not about the Lord's Supper. He's not instituting the Lord's Supper and he's not explaining what goes on in the Lord's Supper. Um, nevertheless, there is a link there. And we'll see more about that when we get towards the end. And you also have an outline if you'd like to follow along. Okie dokie. Okay, come with me to John chapter 6. The first first thing to notice is that Jesus is leveraging the metaphor of bread because of a sign that he has just done. As Vanessa helpfully pointed out, when he fed the 5,000, it was more likely about 10,000. And... When you hear that number, 
even 5,000 alone, when you hear that number, you realise what Jesus did was this spectacular catering event. He's got this, gr- this massive group of people that are following him and they're hungry. We learn from other Gospels, because every Gospel records that story, the miracle of the feeding. We learn from other Gospels that Jesus was really aware that these people had not had food for several days because they had been following him around the countryside. And he's concerned that they will die on the way home. And it's at that point that he says, get me some food from the little boy. And he does his miracle. So he's concerned that these people are going to die on their way home. So he gives for them the meal that they need. You see, after that, when they follow him, Jesus calls them out and says in verse 26, Very truly, I tell you, The reason you are looking for me is not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He recognises that this group of people have got pretty excited about the fact that they, one, saw Jesus manifest this bread like this. But essentially, the reason that they're coming after him is that they've had their fill and they want some more, or they're worried about the next day. We need to get some more food. Now, this might not immediately strike us, but it's quite profound when we think about that culture and what, what's going on for them with food and survival. In that culture, like so many places around the world even today, the staple for your meal was bread and maybe a little bit of wine. Most people would eat that. If you happen to be around water and you can catch some fish, you'd get a little bit of fish there as well. So for most people, what they had day in, day out was bread. So bread was not like it is for us, um, one option amongst many. Bread for them was the entire meal. And you've got this group of people who for several days have risked not working to get the day's meal in order to follow Jesus. They've put their lives at risk and they've maybe put their family at risk in order to follow Jesus because they do not have the day's meal. The other thing is that they would, they would work, most families would work with only the day's meal in view. Not like us who most of us get wonderful wages and salaries and we can do our budget and have that much for food and then heaps more for pleasure and fun and holidays and all that sort of stuff, which is great. Um, for them, it was more like 80 90% of all the effort you did all day was suddenly consumed in that day's meal. So Jesus has just done a miracle where he has provided for these people the entire meal that they need. So as he goes on to talk about himself being the bread, you see that bread is already in the minds of these people highly symbolic. Bread equals survival food. And Jesus has just helped them survive in the desert. Bread equals survival food. Um, It's not like us where we've got all sorts of different bread that we can choose from as an option We've got gluten-free, high-fibre, um, white, multigrain, you know. <laughs> you know, you just go to the bread aisle and there's stacks of different loaves. I know, we've got a 
gluten-free child in our household and so my wife will say can you go down to Woolworths and get gluten-free and then she lists gluten-free that doesn't have egg and milk and other things in it um, it's in such and such an aisle it's in a blue packet inevitably I'm calling her on the phone in the aisle going yeah but I can see two blue packets which one so I'm so thankful that she can work that out but it, it really is like a 10 percent to in our daily life isn't it and we could eat something else not so for these people bread equals survival and these guys have survived they've had their fill their tummies have filled The second point is, off the back of that metaphor, Jesus shifts people's horizon from just the next day to eternity. So in verse 27, after saying that the whole reason that they've come back is ultimately because they've seen the loaves, they've had their fill, and that would be quite exciting, didn't have to work for it, and there's this person providing the daily meal. He calls them out and says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He makes a contrast between food that only lasts a little while and food that has the ability to get you to eternal life and through it. He shifts the horizon. These people, not really any different to us, their horizon is dominated by this afternoon. That's why they're running after Jesus. They've had their fill. What about tomorrow? We need some more bread. Can we keep this going? So their horizon is this afternoon or the next day. And that's how we usually work our lives. We tend to just look about, you know, tomorrow's the big worry or maybe next week. Occasionally we think of next month or six months' time. Some of us might actually start having a horizon that goes to, you know, 12 months' time. Um, some people are super good and have a five-year plan. You talk to them. But in general, it kind of stops there. Jesus wants to shift the horizon from not just the next days temporally, but to eternal life. He says that we need a food that gives us sustenance in such a way that it will get us to and through eternal life. And he says that the Son of Man will give it to us. So the end of verse 27. The reason being, for on the Son of Man, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. One way you could think of food is time trapped in kilojoules. You occasionally hear on the news of these stories of people who have survived in like the caves or the mountains, they've been lost and they've got just a Mars bar, you know those kind of stories, and you hear that they rationed it. That person gets all of a sudden that time, you know, lasting, lasting the distance is suddenly measured in kilojoules and they ration so that they can get through a little bit each day. Jesus is saying we need to get a type of food that can last the distance to eternal life and beyond. So move over Wheatbix, we need something better. And the people come up to him in verse 28 and go, okay, well, if we need this you know, highly packed, energy-dense kind of food, this special food, where do we get it? 
And they asked Jesus in verse 28, what must we do to get it? What must we do to do the works God's required? So if God provides this food, what must we do to get it? And we kind of get that with food. You work to generate uh, the capacity to have food. So it's a legitimate question. But Jesus answers them in verse 29, the work of God that you need to do is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the work. That's the all-encompassing work one has to do to get this survival food that lasts to eternity. To simply believe, or another way you could say that is trust in the one he has sent. So Jesus points out to his audience that at this point, it's, a, it's actually a different type of bread that he's talking about. It's not a bread that you actually go and work for like you normally would. It's a different type of bread. This is a bread that is free. So move over Nutri-Grain. It's more powerful. You don't even have to buy it. It is free bread, just like you received in the desert, but it is a bread that you get through believing in the Son of God. That is the one thing in order to consume this bread. So this is what we've seen. One, the metaphor has already been established, and it's quite potent for the first audience, that it's highly symbolic. Bread equals survival. Two, what we actually need is a type of bread that will last the distance into and through to eternity. And we're told that Jesus gives this bread. Uh, point number three, we see that despite Jesus already intimating that he's not really talking about literal bread, he's just using that as a metaphor to point to something else, the crowd that he's talking to keep thinking that he's talking about literal bread. So in verse 30, they go, okay, what sign then will you give us that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. The crowd have said to Jesus, okay, if we need this extra special bread, they seem to here still be asking him, well, show us the bread. Even if it is extra special, show us real bread. Moses did that in the desert. Come on, bring it forth, manifest it. Um, we need this bread. To this, Jesus decides to unpack the metaphor and speak more plainly. And you see that in verse 35, he says, well, I am the bread of life. So if people weren't kind of making the link themselves that I'm being a little bit metaphorical, but pointing about a different reality, he says, no, I am the bread. You don't need literal bread. You need me. I am the bread. There's no more metaphor or you know leave at least leaving the metaphor hanging to make the links yourself jesus says i am the bread of life jesus is the bread and it's off the back of that that he just starts listing all these statements about if you eat me which is believing in me then you can be assured that you have eternal life and that i'll raise you up on the last day and he keeps saying it over and over again. Verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. So if you come to Jesus, 
You'll never be driven away. Assurance. Verse 39. That I, the, the last half of verse 39, that I shall lose none of them. Actually, let me read the whole thing. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Again, absolute assurance. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Assurance, he keeps layering it up. Again, in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. But if you are drawn to Jesus, then I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 47, very truly I tell you that the one who believes has eternal life. Jesus wants to assure all of us that if you somehow consume him, he is the eternal, he is the survival food that gets you to eternity, then you can be assured that you will have eternal life. And just before he finishes, he does go back into metaphorical language again and kind of presses the metaphor. You know how you can have a metaphor? A metaphor is something that you say, it's like this, but it's actually talking about something different. And you can unpack the metaphor to explain literally what it is, but sometimes you can press further into the metaphor to say even further things. Well, at this stage, Jesus, just wrapping up his talk, he he hints at how he is this life-giving substance by pressing the metaphor a bit further. You see that in verse 51. Read it with me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now, we should be cued in that we know he's not talking about literal bread at this point. But then he does go on to say, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So as he talks about himself being whatever the bread is, he does say he's giving his flesh for the life of the world. Now, in this passage, even the disciples listening and the crowd listening get a little bit bamboozled by it all. But as we said, the the way John has written this gospel, the way Jesus talks too, You often have to just keep reading it and lots of things start to then pop. And if you've read to the end of John's Gospel, you know that the story ends with Jesus giving his life, dying on the cross in order that we might have forgiveness of sins. So here, as he presses the metaphor, I think there's a little bit of a hint of that. Because again, if you think of the original culture and just their sort of worldview with food and survival, as we've talked about, um, again... It was much more impressed on them that to get food, to consume food for our survival, entailed that something had to die. Um, Probably because they were much more interfaced with actually producing the food than we are. As we've talked about, we go to Woolworths or Coles, we have packaging, we have colourful packaging to distract us from the fact that something had to die Grain had to be crushed and killed. Uh, animals had to be crushed and killed. You know, grapes had to be crushed, destroyed and killed in order for us to survive. We live every day by something else dying. 
Um, something dies in order to live. But as I say, we, dis- we sort of disguise all that with happy toys as you have your dead cow. You know, that, I hope that hasn't offended anyone's sensibilities. Um, but they would get that something dies in order to live. And I think Jesus is pressing his metaphor and tapping into that. This bread, verse 51, is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, hinting that somehow his existence is going to be snuffed out in order that there is life for the world. Further down, he starts talking, my flesh is real food and blood is real drink. This is the real stuff that will last the distance into eternity, as he's been talking about. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So pulling it all together, um, we've seen that the metaphor of bread equals survival food. Second, we need, Jesus says you need something more than literal bread because literal bread uh, only lasts a day. It spoils and a day evaporates. You need something that's going to get you all the way to eternity and through that. And three, he says, I am that substance. Somehow consuming Jesus, which he has explained, the act of consuming is believing. Believing, trusting in Jesus is what gives you assurance that you have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you have eaten that survival food that you need for eternal life. Jesus is the survival food, the all-encompassing work that we need to do in order to get this food is simply trust that Jesus has given it to us. Once you have believed, you have eaten. And that is the assurance that we are given that we are saved. So if we come back to that circle that I put up, if you can put that up, please, Marnie. Um, a passage like this, and so many others through the Bible, should show us that if we end up engaging in this kind of thinking, um, we're, we've misunderstood where the grounds for our assurance comes from. There is no boundary line where you have to manifest a certain level of faith or have dealt with X amount of sins or at least come under a threshold. There's, there's no requirement to have absolutely confessed and catalogued all your sins and sort of put that before God. Um, there's, there's not a certain culpable level of the fruits of the Spirit that need to be in existence to you and others to give you assurance that you are saved. It's the wrong model. If we go with what Jesus said, that the all-encompassing work to give you assurance that you are saved is trusting in him, then this, I propose, is the model that we should have. We are all at different distances from the ideal of Jesus, but Jesus has said that the criteria for Assurance that you are in the category of Christian, the ones that will be 
raised up on the last day to have eternal life is if you are facing him, if you are coming to him, if you are trusting him. And you may be, all of us are at different distances from the ideal of, of where we should be. But if we are looking at how much sin or, or not is in our life or how much faith or not is in our life as the criteria for assurance, we, of course, we'll be left with a lot of anxiety and turmoil. It'll be a torturous question throughout our Christian life. Am I saved or not? But Jesus wants to give us complete assurance. You are saved the minute you turn to him. That is the defining criteria. Do you turn to Jesus and believe in him? Now, this doesn't mean that behaviour and right thinking and doctrines and all that doesn't matter. It does. But it's not you've got to get that all right or even to a certain threshold to be counted in. The criteria is whether you face Jesus or not. That's the determining point. If you go back to the boundary picture, just go back one, that's full of questions like, well, have I manifested enough to be sure? How can I be sure? If you come, come forward to the next one, that, the question turns on, well, who is at my centre? And Jesus has said, if, you're, if you've got me, the Son of Man, the one whom the Father has sent as, as your centre, then you can be assured that you are saved, you'll be raised up on the last day. Now, just coming back to what I said, it doesn't mean that behaviour or right thinking doesn't matter because the Bible does tell us that as Jesus saves, he He saves us in order to transform us. He gives us the Spirit. Um, All throughout the Old Testament, there are big promises and prophecies that in the day that the Messiah comes to save, in the day that the Son of Man comes to save, it will be a day when God pours out his Spirit and causes transformation. It is even in our passage here. If you look at verse verse 45... Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. That's a quote from Isaiah 54, one of those big passages and promises that in the day that the Messiah saves, God will pour out his transformative spirit to make hearts follow God. And so that is what we see in the Christian life, is we are on this journey under God's transformative power to be more like Jesus. But as we look at our life and do some introspection and say, well, I want to kill sin and I want to be more godly, we've got to make sure we don't make that the criteria, our progression in that, the criteria for our assurance of being saved. Because that's not where the assurance lies. It lies in who is at your centre. Um, If we are struggling with a lot of sin or great faith doubts, or maybe like even me this week, I had some stuff go on and I thought, man, I really need to have the fruits of the Spirit in this situation. But I thought, I just don't feel it and I don't really want to. I'd rather go with the fruits of the flesh and go revenge and anger, outbursts of anger. Um, It it happens. Um, 
You know, even if that stuff is going on, it can cause, when you see that in your life, it, can, it could cause you great consternation if you're thinking, I need to have this right for assurance. But I, like you, can know, no, it's not about that. It's about who is at the centre. Nevertheless, God's word calls us to change. Um, I love the book of 1 Corinthians. You start in the first chapter and Paul says, Dear Corinthians, you are saints. You are sanctified. You are holy and blameless. You will definitely be there on the day of the Lord. But now about some matters. You are practically unspiritual. You look ridiculous. And he lists all the things that they are doing. And he goes, by, by what it looks, you practically look like you are un, an unbeliever in a lot of things. But yet, even Paul is not grounding their salvation in the outward manifestation but who is at their centre and he sees that Jesus is at their centre and he has assurance even looking at such a crazy bunch of people us that we will be saved so now as we finish up and we come to the Lord's Supper um, the Lord's Supper is a great gift from Jesus himself to remind us that we need to have him at the centre of our lives. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So as the people get ready to serve out the elements, um, we're about to participate in, in a great gift that Jesus has given us to remind us that he has done it all. He has done the all-encompassing work. And while it is true that later on he has a meal where he takes bread and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, um, hopefully through this passage and even looking at the Lord's Supper, we see that Jesus is talking in symbolic terms about his very death and resurrection. He's not saying that the bread is literally his body or somehow the bread we're about to take is going to be transformed into flesh, like Jesus' flesh. And the grape juice, even though it'll taste like grape juice, is somehow being transformed into Jesus' blood. Um, as we've seen, he's leveraging known metaphors in order to make the point about his death and resurrection. But Jesus gives us this gift to remind us that Jesus has done it all, the all-encompassing work, so that all we have to do is trust in him. Because we are such forgetful people, we do forget. We might be looking too much at our own life and what's going on and trying to find assurance there. So let me invite everyone to participate in this, no matter where you would plot yourself in terms of distance from the centre. Um, it is a great tragedy that sometimes we take these great gifts from God, the Lord's Supper and things like baptism, and we self-police and say, well, I won't participate in that until I've, I know more stuff, more doctrine, or I... You know, have got this figured out in my life. I think that's getting the whole thing back to front. So sometimes we self-police. Sadly, sometimes churches can self-police that or police that. Thanks. They can police it by almost visibly, and I would argue some churches even visibly do put up a fence <laughs> from the Lord's table. Um, what a tragedy. Because it's Jesus' gift to us to remind us that no matter what distance we are, if we turn, if he's our centre, then we can be assured that we are saved, have eternal life and will be raised up in the last day.
So I'll allow you a moment to reflect, thank Jesus for that. Um, as you confess your sin, um, we confess in a way that we're not doing it to get us back in. We confess because we are in and we can be safe to confess because we are in. If you have gluten-free needs, please just put your hands up. And just hold the bread and wine and we can drink together. Okay, we're about to eat and drink together. Let's just think about what's going on in this moment. We have been given highly symbolic elements that point to Jesus giving up his existence, distinguishing himself in order to give us life. We receive it freely. There's nothing we do. Even the act of being served for us. People are coming around. All you do is you receive it. You put your hands up and you receive it. You receive the fact that something has been crushed in order that you might live. And we're about to all drink and eat together. So we're not looking at one another, judging. Even if it may be that one of your brothers or sisters here have annoyed you in the past and they served you. Uh, this is the moment where we don't, we don't bring any arbitrary fence and rule who's in and out. We are together in unity, all in, because of the all-encompassing work of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we put our hands up like this because we receive freely from you. You come down from heaven and you give life to the world. You are the one who has willingly crushed himself, poured out his blood so that we might have life. All the work is done. We are filled. Our spiritual tummies are filled and we are assured, Lord Jesus, that we will be raised up on the last day. We praise you and thank you for this. Amen.